Kiorofano. We're going to continue our series in Romans, but I thought before we do, it'd be good to pray together. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather together. And as we gather, we gather as your family. Lord, thank you that you have saved us individually, but you've placed us to be joined to each other, to love each other, to encourage each other, to inspire one another, to develop in our faith, and to be the people you've created us to be. And Lord, this morning, we ask for your perspective. We ask for a fresh understanding of your will for us, not just as individuals, but as a, as a family that's called to love you and serve you. And Lord, there's plenty of distractions going on. There was a big one this morning. Lord, and it's easy, I guess, when you lose a game to call it a distraction. But Lord, we ask in the midst of what seems to be a national passion, Lord, to be reminded by you of the greater things, of the eternal things. And pray that you help us not to live in isolation to what's going on around us, but that you give us your perspective and how we're able to talk words of life, words of truth, into situations and circumstances of people's lives that are affected, uh, lives that are affected by things, Lord, that you care about. So, Father, we pray this morning that the way that we listen to you, the way that we respond to you, would honour you and would please you, because you're a great God. And we're so blessed to know you. Amen. <clears throat> so far in the series on Romans, we've had the bad news that all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us is good enough. Even the best amongst us is not good enough to meet the qualifying standard and we will all face the ominous, or as Justin Marshall says, the ominous. We will all face the ominous prospect of God's justice and God's judgment. It's crisis time. What hope do we have? So we've got this picture of our journey through Romans. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 21... It's been described as the turning point because it introduces two words, and the two words are, but now. So up until this point in the series of Romans, it's been about, we are all falling short of God's standard. We are all sinful. And then it comes to this point, but now. So it's God's crucial intervention when everything seems lost to mankind. It's a switch so it's a switch from the failure of humans to worship their creator to the faithfulness of God towards his creation. So we're going to be reminded this morning through Romans about the way out of our sin predicament, about the way out of the valley 
of sin in the diagram, which is the low point. In fact, we're going to see that the way out is not because of anything we do, any actions we might take, but it's to believe that God's done it for us. Our way out is to believe that Jesus' death has reconciled us to God. It's God's grace that has saved us. Salvation is a gift, and we're going to think about what it means to have a gift and what we do with a gift. Salvation is a gift that we receive by faith. Let's read together the passage in Romans from chapter 3. So verses 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Grace is the only way out of our predicament of sin. Salvation is something that we can't earn. It's something that we can't achieve on our own. It's not a do-it-yourself project. It's not as if you can search on the internet for a YouTube on how do I solve my problem of sin and have some options of which video you're going to click on because you like the look of it best, and then follow the step-by-step instructions and resolve the sin that sits in your life. It's not a DIY project. It's a rescue effort. The only solution to our problem is Jesus. Salvation is a gift. This is at the core of our Christian faith. It makes us unique among the other world religions. We're going to have a quick snapshot at what some of the other world religions believe, particularly when it comes to engaging God and being right with God. So we're going to look at these ones here. So Hinduism. Hinduism lets a person choose how to work towards spiritual perfection. And there are three possible ways uh, to end the cycle of karma. The first one, be lovingly devoted to any of the Hindu deities. The second one is to grow in knowledge through meditation of Brahman. And Brahman means oneness. To realise that circumstances in life are not real. That selfhood is an illusion and only Brahman is real. And the third way is to be dedicated to various religious ceremonies and rites. New Age spirituality. Well, you can basically choose what you like to do here because it's a collection of ancient spiritual traditions. And they're taught by a vast array of speakers, books and seminars. 
It acknowledges many gods and goddesses, as in Hinduism. The earth is viewed as the source of all spirituality and has its own intelligence, emotions, and deity. But superseding all is self. Self is the originator, controller, and power over all. There is no reality outside of what the person determines. New Age teaches Eastern mysticism and spiritual metaphysical and psychic techniques, such as breathing exercises, chanting, drumming, meditating, all to develop an altered consciousness of one's own divinity. Most Buddhists believe that a person has countless rebirths, which inevitably include suffering. A Buddhist seeks to end these rebirths. Buddhists believe it is a person's cravings, aversion, and delusion that cause these rebirths. Therefore, the goal of a Buddhist is to purify one's heart and let go of all yearnings towards sensual desires and the attachment to oneself. Buddhists follow a list of religious principles and adhere to personal restraint, fasting, and very dedicated meditation. When a Buddhist meditates, it's not the same as praying or focusing on a god. It's more of a self-discipline. Through practiced meditation, a person may reach nirvana. You probably have heard that word nirvana. It means the blowing out of the flame of desire. Buddhism provides something that is true of most major religions. It has disciplines, it has values, and it has directives that a person may want to live by. Muslims believe that there is one almighty God named Allah, who is infinitely superior to and transcendent from mankind. Allah is viewed as the creator of the universe and the source of all good and all evil. Everything that happens is Allah's will. He is a powerful and strict judge who will be merciful towards followers depending on the sufficiency of their life's good works and religious devotion. A follower's relationship with Allah is as a servant to Allah. Though a Muslim honors several prophets, Muhammad is considered the last prophet and his words and lifestyle are that person's responsibility, uh, that person's authority. To be a Muslim, one must follow five religious duties. Number one, repeat a creed about Allah and Muhammad. Secondly, recite certain prayers in Arabic five times a day. Thirdly, give to the needy. Fourthly, once a month, uh, sorry, one month each year, fast from food, drink, sex, and smoking from sunrise to sunset. And fifthly, uh, pilgrimage once in one's lifetime to worship at a shrine in Mecca. And at death, based on one's faithfulness to these duties, a Muslim hopes to enter paradise. If not, they will be eternally punished in hell. So in summary, Hindus acknowledge multitudes of gods and deities. Buddhists say there is no deity. New Age spiritualities believe they are the deity, they are God. And Muslims believe in a powerful but unknowable God. But as Christians, we believe a loving God 
created us for the purpose of knowing him. When you look at what each religion requires and how individuals need to be obedient and disciplined to be better so that they can please their God, what sacrifices they're prepared to make to overcome sin and to earn God's approval. When you look at all that, Christianity stands out as not being a religion. I would rather describe it as a relationship with God. We're going to look at one of the testimonies that have been provided as part of our resources for this series. Thanks, Rachel. I love history in general. At a young age, I read a lot about Islamic history. I remember very young thinking that I just want to, you know, be a really good Muslim and do the best I can for God, you know. Early 2015, I was watching news on my laptop in the kitchen and um, ISIS, the Islamic State, they were basically going through Palmyra. Um, Palmyra has, had, had a lot of history um, and they were like destroying, pulling down sort of statues, just breaking things apart. And I remember looking at it and I just thought, why? I couldn't understand. I said, God of Abraham, if you are real, why are you giving us all very, very different instructions? Why would you tell Christians? A different thing, tell Muslims a different thing, tell the Jews a different thing. Why are you doing this? And then when I said this, um, that's when I had the vision. I found myself in a really big field and on one side of it was a man on a white horse and there was so much light around him and then on the other side of the field, I saw a lot of horses with men on them and they were carrying the Islamic Shahada. And then I heard this voice and it said, Jesus is my son and Jesus is going to come back. I immediately kind of knew I was on the wrong side. I was really afraid of what I'd just seen and what I knew I had to do. I went to the church near where I was living there were two women there. I explained to them everything that I had seen. I told them of the vision. One of the ladies said, oh, did you know that Revelation speaks about that? And she opened the Bible to a chapter and gave it to me to read. That was the day I said, I will accept Jesus as God. The love of God is a father, a husband, a brother, a friend, all rolled into one. I think of God giving up everything to rescue us because he loves us. I don't have to bring anything. He does all that. We just have to know him and believe in him. And that's it. That's grace. For God's gift of salvation to apply to me, 
I need to accept it. For God's gift of salvation to apply to you, you need to accept it. Sounds quite obvious, doesn't it? But imagine buying an expensive gift for someone that you love. Having it specially wrapped. I like it when I buy a gift and someone says, oh, can we gift wrap that? And I think, yes, you're saving me unnecessary pain and failure. So they wrap it nicely and it's all square and it's even. And then you give it to the person that you love. And they say, thanks very much. And they just put it aside. You're waiting for them to actually open it to discover the gift and to enjoy it. As far as I know about my family history, going back on, on both sides of my mother's and father's side for at least three generations, my ancestors, my forebears were Christian. So I was born and raised in a Christian family and in a Christian church and community. I attended Sunday school, I attended Bible class because it was called that before it was called youth group, um, and I attended boys brigade. A lot of my uh, out of school activities were all church connected. So the Bible and Christian behaviour were very familiar to me, it was my comfort zone. But my faith wasn't personal, it was a way of life, it was a religious practice. I knew about God, but I didn't know him as you would know a friend. And it wasn't until I was challenged to believe that God's love and his grace was real and personal that I made my decision that I really wanted to know him. But even coming to that decision is a bit risky because where would I go if I was saying that the life that I was experiencing up to that point wasn't enough, it wasn't authentic enough, it didn't have that personal connection, where would I go if I said that's where I'm at and then there was nothing more? So I would have judged my Christian upbringing in the way of life as not being everything it needed to be but have nothing to replace it with. But if the teachings of God were true, if his love for me was personal, then I wanted to experience that. It was worth the risk. So I remember for me, uh, the time where I decided to take that risk was in the um, second story of the Dunedin Town Hall, if that's what you call it, the upper level, at a crusade that uh, a Negro American, Tom Skinner, had just spoken about his experience of God when he was in a, a gang and how he had come to experience Jesus and how he had decided that he needed to, he needed to repent, he needed to walk away from the, the life of sin that he had been living. And so he declared that to his gang members and turned and walked out of the meeting there and expecting that because he was the leader of the gang, that you don't walk out on gangs. The only way that you walk out of gangs is if you're dead. So he expected his lieutenant to knife him in the back. And he said that he walked straight out there and he was amazed he got there. Later on, uh, his lieutenant, he asked his lieutenant, um, why did you not do that? And he said, well, I couldn't. There was this big angel standing behind you. 
And that made me really think, well, if God is real, if all these stories in the Bible are really real, then I wanted to know that type of experience for myself. So I was on the second floor of Dunedin Town Hall. It was a reasonably conservative group that we'd come from, so I think we were all relatively challenged, but we were all still sitting there with our arms folded and looking to the front. And I thought, no, I'm going to do this. So I stood up and walked down, and I, I know that other people were looking at me. And for me, that was the first step of saying, God, I want this experience of you to be significant. So God met me in a real way that evening, <clears throat> and he's been with me in a real personal way for over 51 years. So you can tell I was only a child of two at the time. <laughs> but the thing that I treasure most in my life are those special moments when God is undeniably real and he's so present to me. Moments when I sense him talking to me. And it's a bit odd, isn't it, if you say to people, oh, God talks to me, they think, okay, you haven't taken enough medication. You know, voices in your head aren't, aren't what we should expect. But the Bible tells us that God does talk to us. He does lead us. He does guide us. And when I experience that, it, it's like it completes me. It's like, yeah, this is who God has made me to be, and just connecting with him is, is fantastic. And when you sense the Holy Spirit flowing through you, when you sense that he's leading you in a way which surprises you, that, well, I would never have thought of that. This is God. And you work with him and see God do things in people's lives. That's incredible. And in those moments, I feel incredibly loved and accepted. For me, those moments are so different to a religious practice. The religious practice seems one-dimensional. It's about knowing of God, whereas experiencing God personally is at least three-dimensional. It gives me depth and meaning to my current life, it connects me to God, to his will, and to his purposes. And it gives me confidence in my hope that God's promises that this relationship, this experience I have of him, will last beyond my lifetime. It'll last for eternity. Have you opened up God's gift of salvation for you? Have you accepted that Jesus paid the price, the full price, for your sin? And have you experienced that real and personal love that God has towards you? If you haven't yet done that in your life, and you choose to do it, it will be the most significant decision that you can ever make. Because it will remove the barrier the sin barrier that sits between all of us and God, and only Jesus can remove that barrier. It's easy to do. It's just like unwrapping a present. God's done the hard bit. He's prepared the gift. He's got it wrapped up, and he is offering it to each of us. Our responsibility is to say thank you and to open the gift. 
And the way that we do that is to pray a prayer something like this. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you that he has paid the full price for my sins. I accept your amazing gift of forgiveness of all my sins. And I accept that Jesus Christ is my personal hero. He's my saviour and my Lord. Thank you for including me into your family. Amen. If you've prayed that for the first time, well done. Could I get a woohoo? <laughs> Please share that good news with someone so that you can be supported and encouraged in your new relationship with God. But maybe you've prayed that prayer already. Maybe like me, it was many years ago. So I pray that today, this might be an opportunity for you to reflect again upon how great God's grace is. To remind ourselves that salvation is a gift which cannot be earned and that all we, regardless of who we are and what we've done, all we need to do is to be totally dependent upon the finished work of Jesus. Maybe today is a good day to enjoy another personal encounter with God. During the week, uh, we celebrated the faithful life of May Redpath. And Dennis and May have been a significant part of us for well, as long as we've been in Christchurch. And I know for many of us for even longer than that. And there was a song that was sung at the service that I thought fitted so well with the theme of Romans. So it's from a song uh, which is called I Then Shall Live. And this is the first verse. I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I'll walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I know my name is clear before my father. I am his child and I'm not afraid. So, greatly pardoned, I'll forgive my brother. The law of love I will gladly obey. So coming back to our passage in Romans, Paul uses three main metaphors to illustrate what does salvation really mean. So he talks about redemption, and, if, and he talks about slavery. And back in the time where Romans was written, slavery was a major influence on society. There was a huge proportion of people uh, who either owned slaves or were slaves. And so he talked about the emancipation of a slave by paying a ransom price, buying someone's freedom. He gave that picture for people to understand because that was the context of society for them. And for the Jews who might have been listening to that message, he talked about an atoning sacrifice because they were familiar with the Old Testament. They were familiar with how there needed to be the shedding of blood to cover over sin that had been committed. So he talked about an atonement sacrifice that would cover over all of the sins that we have, as people have made. And then he talked about justification, which is possibly the more difficult concept for those at the time and for us. 
because he was saying that on one hand, and he talked about two sides of a coin, on one side of the coin, God's justice needed to be properly satisfied. And then he said that on the cross, God's standards of justice, the requirements of justice, were fully met by the sacrifice of Jesus. During a severe potato famine in Ireland, several families wrote letters to their landlord saying they had absolutely no money to pay their rent and begged to be let off their debts. The Irish landlord, Canon Andrew Robert Fawcett, wrote back to his tenants and explained that it was quite impossible to let them off their debts. It would set a bad precedent they had to pay every single penny. But, he wrote, I enclosed something that might help. He sent a cheque for a very large sum, which more than covered all their debts. It's an example of God's justice at work, of justification. The debt still needed to be paid, but the landlord paid it for his tenants. Our debt of sin still needs to be paid, but God has paid it for us. Through faith in Jesus, the crucified Messiah, our debts are fully paid and we are forgiven. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 4 and he talks about Abraham. And it's interesting that he would go from the discussing of the principles of salvation to jump back to a character from the Old Testament who was before the law. You know, well, why would he pick Abraham? Could he have not picked someone like Moses who was there who received the law and could understand the purpose of the law? But I think Paul knew what he was writing about because it emphasises that God's pattern of a lifestyle that pleases him is through faith. It's not through obedience to the law. Abraham's story is quite remarkable. In chapter 4 of Romans, there's three verses starting at verse 2. It says, If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So Abraham's life shows us the following attributes. That he lived a bold life. I sometimes think about how he was able to hear God and discern that, yes, this is God talking to me. And then to be so convinced that it was God to leave everything, to pack up everything, and to go to a land he had never been to, didn't know what he was going to encounter, out of obedience. Today we would probably describe that person as a nutter. But that's the sort of faith that God is inspiring us with. 
Abraham believed God's promises in spite of circumstances. You think when God told him to take his only son that he had waited over 90 years for up onto a hill and that his son was going to become a sacrifice. He went there fully expecting that he would have to kill his son and offer him as a sacrifice to God. What faith, believing that even though that sounds so wrong, that, that God is God and that he will, he will provide a way out. And I think to me that's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? That the only way out for us with our sin is for us to pay the full price of it. But that God has said, no, I have, I have solved that problem as well. Because Jesus stands in my place and he stands in your place as the sacrifice that is acceptable to God. I think the example of Abraham proves that living by faith predates the law. And it proves that Abraham's justification before God is the model for our justification. So what do we do in the light of all this? I think there are five points that I'd suggest would be good for us to reflect on. I think in the light of God's gift of salvation, in the light of Abraham's example of faith, what can we do? I think firstly, let's accept that God's grace is a free gift. We can't earn it, and we don't have to pay God back. Good works are what we're called to do as a response to what God's already done. Good works don't make us more entitled to God's grace. They don't mean that we reach a a greater level of being loved by God or accepted by God. Secondly, I think we need to rely on God's grace. And I think if you've been a Christian for a while, I think that's a timely reminder to rely on God, his sufficiency, his enabling, his empowering, and to let go of self-justification. Thirdly, I think what we can do is to be grateful to God and not proud. Again, I think if we've been on our Christian journey for a while, pride is something which will sneak up on us and try and ankle tap us. In our Christian life, there's no room for pride because God has done it all. And there's no room for pride because salvation is freely available to everyone, regardless of gender or race or status. Fourthly, I think we're required to live lives of faith. And I think this is, this is where we should feel challenged. Because I think it's easy to live lives of safety and security and to be complacent. And to, if we do take a risk, to make sure that it's a managed risk, that there's a way out, and that if it doesn't go right the way we think it should, it's not going to be devastating. I think we, we tend to minimise just how far we're prepared to 
step out for God. So living lives of faith, I believe, are connected to believing God's promises, to believing that God will act, and to expect it to be an adventure. I don't know that I'd particularly enjoy the sort of adventure that Abraham had, but what sort of adventure might God have for you? Have you asked him? Because I don't believe any of us get to a point where the adventures have stopped. But sometimes I get to the point where I stop asking. But if today I was to ask and you were to ask God, what's the next faith adventure that you would like me to explore with you? I wonder what he might say. I think living lives of faith require us to be confident in God's power because he will call us to do things and believe things which are beyond us. They're beyond our skills and resources, possibly beyond our understanding. But if we're confident in God's power, then doesn't it open the door wide for God to work through us If we just limit him to what we think we can do for him, then that's a very narrow window. Whereas if we say, God, you've called me to be in this place. You're going to do something which I don't yet fully understand the significance or the depth of it, but I'm with you. Let's go for it. Then he will. He will do that, and he won't be limited by us. And I think living lives of faith requires us to be bold. There are many times in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in Joshua, where God encourages people to be bold and courageous. I don't think God has changed his message to his church. I think he's saying to us, let's be bold and courageous. So what does it mean for us as a church to be bold and courageous? And then I think, finally, my fifth point there is to encourage one another. Because we don't do this in isolation, we we journey together. But I think our society has taught us to be self-sufficient. It teaches us to be independent. Whereas when you look at the model of God's family, it's people who are interdependent. People who journey together rather than alongside. He gives us the example of a body that we're joined together. You don't see bits of the body going out independently of each other. They go out because they're connected. It's the only way that you can move. You can't say to your hand, okay, go out to the car and start the engine running for me, because it's connected to your arm. But sometimes in church, I think we're quite happy where someone sort of says, well, I think God's calling us to do something. And we thought, okay, Where you go then, let's see if he's with you or not. I don't know that that's the the picture of unity, the picture of body life that God is calling us to. So I encourage you this morning to reflect on what God might be saying to you. Keep that image of the present in your mind. 
Have I fully unwrapped everything that God has for me? Am I using the gifts that he has given me as he would want me to? Am I living a life of faith that pleases him and scares me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are a broken people. We confess that we easily justify our sinful and selfish actions and words. Forgive us for pretending to be better than we really are. Today, we agree that we have fallen short and desperately need your grace. Thank you that we are not without hope because you died for us on the cross. You paid the price for our wrong and you offered us all grace and freedom. You truly are the saviour of all. We thank you for the gift of salvation in our lives. Pray that you give us wisdom and courage to fully unwrap that gift. And we give you permission this morning to prompt us to live lives of faith. We give you permission to prompt us to be bold and to expect that you are going to do things in us and through us that surprise us and scare us, but are going to grow us as well. And not only that, they're going to bless people around about us and they're going to achieve your will through us. Lord, thank you again that you have called us to know you, that our, our faith is not just a religion, it's a relationship with you. Thank you for that relationship. Thank you for loving us. Amen. Do we have a closing song? We do.